So that reading is Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 24, and on page 1623. Luke 14, 1 to 24. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will, so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Food, glorious food. Luke's gospel is filled with eating. There's 19 meals in Luke's gospel. 13 are unique to his account. If you love food, Luke is the gospel for you. Luke uses meals to display the kingdom dynamics that are taking place when Jesus is present. They are occasions for healing and hospitality, for celebration and for worship, for instruction and challenge, and they are on every occasion an occasion of grace. Occasions to learn about God's free, unearned, undeserved favour in daily life and his saving grace, his offer of saving grace in the Lord Jesus. Jesus tells 
this passage that we're going to look at, this parable, in the context of a meal. So we're going to look at this passage under these headings. Law and grace, humility and grace, replicating grace and rejecting grace. But first, please pray with me. Gracious God, we want to grow in our understanding of the truth, but also in godliness. We appreciate that truth without godliness, or godliness lacking truth, will lead to distorted living. Please use your word and your spirit to lead us into the abundant life that Jesus offers. Please shape our thinking and our living as you teach us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Jesus, who had previously been criticised for eating with tax collectors and sinners, is now invited to the home of a prominent Pharisee. Luke makes us aware of two significant factors. Firstly, it is a Sabbath. It is a Sabbath. And secondly, that Jesus has been invited so that he can be scrutinised and assessed. Will this Jesus measure up? As he enters, there in front of him is a man with abnormal swelling. It appears that he's been wheeled in for the occasion to try and entrap Jesus. Jesus is going to use this situation to talk about grace without even uttering the word grace. Jesus asked the supposed experts of the law a question regarding the law. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? His question is met with silence. So Jesus' initial response will be in actions rather than words. He walks over and touches this man, this sick man, who would be ritually unclean, he touches him and holds him. That's not kosher. And then he does more than that. He heals him and sends him on his way. This is grace in action. Grace is being enacted before their very eyes. But there is still no comment. So Jesus personalises the question for them. Look with me at verse 5. If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? Of course, of course the law is suspended to save life, to, to pers- preserve life. Of course the law is superseded by things such as grace and mercy. Yet they say nothing. God's law was intended to be a gift of grace, not a burden to carry, a gift of grace. The Sabbath was intended to be a gift of grace. God's kingdom is first and foremost about God's grace. Do you view this very day as a gift of grace to you from God? Do you see this day as God's gift? Do we see this gathering as God's gift to us? Are we grateful for each and every person who is here? God's gifts of grace to us on this Sabbath. 
Jesus speaks about the law and grace and then moves on to humility and grace. James Valentine is an ABC radio presenter who does early afternoon programs on 2BL, Old People's Radio. One of his regular segments is The New Normal. It, it outlines rules of engagement for modern life, social etiquette in the 21st century. And at first glance, Jesus' next words look as though they might be his social commentary on how to throw a party. However, we see that there is deeper meaning here because Luke refers to what will follow as a parable. Uh, please look with me at verses 7 to 9. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both, both of you, will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But Jesus wants them to avoid humiliation. He wants them to avoid a public shaming. Jesus is speaking common sense. Opt for humility to avoid humiliation. You are an invited guest. This is a gift. As an invitee, as a recipient of grace, you are in a place where you are receiving something you haven't earned or deserved. Take a lowly place. Take a lowly place. After all, you don't want to have that tap on your shoulder and be the attention of everybody for all the wrong reasons. Opt for humility to avoid humiliation. Now, of course, this is more than just Jesus' guide to first century table manners. This is a parable. So as, as such, it will point us to how the kingdom of God actually works. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 help us out here. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In God's kingdom, grace is to be the motivator. Not selfish ambition or vain conceit. Not a striving to get to the top, to get to the best. Not a misguided self-assessment of our own importance. No. As we saw last week, Jesus would go on to show his audience and us what true humility would look like. His actions would again speak. Jesus would do this by humbling himself, becoming obedient to death, death on a cross. Jesus' humility would lead to his utter humiliation so that we wouldn't have to face ultimate humiliation ourselves. He would be scoffed and scorned, despised and rejected, shamed and crushed. But in response, God would exalt him to the highest place and give him the name above every name. 
descending into greatness. Humility motivated by grace is the only way into God's kingdom. God's kingdom cannot be grasped, cannot be won. It comes by descending into greatness with humility that is motivated by grace. Jesus then turns his attention to the host of this party. He's been talking to the party goers, now to the host. He wants the host to know that he has responsibilities, he has obligations. As a man who is blessed, he's obligated to replicate grace. The host is told not to always be inviting friends and neighbours and relatives, those who might offer an invitation in return. Don't invite those, only those, who will reinforce a payback culture. Don't do this for what you might get out of it. That's not grace. That's more akin to selfish ambition and vain conceit. This is not to be about creating a false impression of how good you are. No. And this is not, not about earning future earthly blessings. Yes, there are blessings to be, to be won, but it's not about earning earthly blessings. Look with me in verses 13 and 14. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The focus should be on grace and the blessings that will flow to grace at the future time. This host is a prominent man. He's an educated lawyer. He's obviously wealthy enough to put on lavish dinners. And although he may not think, although he may think otherwise, he has been the recipient of grace. He has been blessed with education. He has been blessed with wealth. And therefore, he should use his blessings to be gracious to others, the poor, the disabled, those who are unable to earn his favour, those who are unable to repay, those who are undeserving. Even these very words that Jesus is speaking to him are a gift of grace. Will, will he accept this? Or will he reject grace? Up to this point, we've only heard one voice at this dinner party, the voice of Jesus. Then in verse 15... Someone sitting at the table chimes in. Look at verse 15. Blessed is the one who eats at the feast of the kingdom of God. Someone speaks up. Is he trying to impress Jesus? Maybe he thinks Jesus is keeping the conversation just on the level of social niceties and he wants to raise the discourse, not realising that Jesus is already speaking about the kingdom. Regardless, 
Jesus takes the opportunity to unpack the membership of the kingdom of God by telling the parable of the great banquet. Now the concept of a coming messianic feast, a kingdom that would be represented by a feast where God graciously removes the pain and disgrace of all his people, had been around for centuries. It had been around since Isaiah's time. Isaiah 25 outlines what this feast, this lavish feast, this gracious feast will look like. So they know what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about this wedding feast in this simple yet profound parable. In Jesus' time, the planning for a party without clocks, without the post office, without the internet, required a servant to do plenty of footwork. Firstly, a servant would be sent out. He would be sent to various people to invite them. And at that same time as inviting them, he would get their RSVPs. He would get their responses. And so he would collect, he would give out the invitation, collect the responses, go home to his master. Then his master could busy himself in preparing the party, knowing exactly how many guests he was expecting, how many guests had already agreed to come. On the day of the feast, when everything is ready, the servant was out and about again early. It's time, it's time, the feast is ready. He he would be ushering them to the master's place and to their places to be seated. Come, everything is now ready, is the dinner bell. It's the dinner bell, it's not the invitation. It's the dinner bell. And to back out of the invitation at this late stage was not just to reject the meal, to reject a gracious gift, but to reject the host as well. Yet when the servant is out and about, ushering the people in, he's met with a barrage of rejection. Lame excuse after lame excuse. Uh, This is not just the rejection of three invitees. Yes, there are three excuses there, but have a look in verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. This is the rejection of an extravagant free gift. The rejection of an offer of a lifetime belittled and shunned. However, grace will not be thwarted. With urgency, the poor servant, he's out again. He's out again, calling in the blind and the lame. All must come in. And these people who know they are undeserving are keen to come. They know they can never repay. It seems as though in the kingdom, those who know they don't belong are the ones who won't miss out. The ones who think they do belong, that's a different question. God was extending invitations to his people, the Jews, to the great banquet through Jesus. 
the majority of the Pharisees who thought that they would be honoured guests would exclude themselves by rejecting Jesus. The invitation would be offered to all to join God's kingdom. But again, there would be those who exclude themselves by rejecting Jesus. The invitation is not permanent. It requires a timely response. You, each of you, is invited to a place at the table with God himself. Jesus is the gracious gift that God offers. His humility, his resurrection, in exchange for your ultimate humiliation. How could anyone shun such a gift? How could anyone shun such saving grace? But we know people day after day, moment by moment, reject grace. Why do they do that? Here are a few reasons. Firstly, they don't recognise their need. Like the Pharisee that Daryl spoke about last week. The Pharisee who went into the temple to pray. And what was it that he asked God for? Can you remember what did he ask God for? Tell me. Ah, oh, no, he said, oh, I'm not like them. But what did he ask for? Nothing. He didn't ask for anything. Like that Pharisee, there are plenty of people who think they are self-sufficient. I'm good enough. They believe that they've already exceeded the moral standard necessary to placate any anger that God might have against them. Not realising that the only standard that God accepts is the perfection of his son. Our self-righteousness will never be enough. It will never be enough. In fact, when we pray, we should seek forgiveness for our righteousness. For as Isaiah says in chapter 64, verse 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We are all in desperate need of the righteousness of another. We are all in desperate need of the righteousness of Christ. So please reflect seriously and ask yourself, am I relying upon Jesus? Or in reality, am I trusting myself? Please, please recognise your need for saving grace and ongoing daily grace. You see, the gospel compels us to live a paradox. The more progress we make, the more we need grace. The more righteous we become, the more we are aware of just how deeply we are flawed and how much we need forgiveness. Some reject 
because they don't recognise their need. Others don't appreciate the greatness of grace. Did you see what was going on in verse 23 when there was still room at the feast? That poor servant had to go out again. And it wasn't just round the streets and the lanes. Now he had to go to the country, out to the country roads. Grace is on offer to those who are at the greatest distance from the kingdom. Grace is on offer to those who are furthest from the kingdom. And this grace is greater. This grace is greater than our sin, our failures, our hurts. It's greater than our weaknesses, our secrets, our shame. It's greater than our felt abandonment. And yes, greater than our excuses. Grace is always greater than. Thirdly, there are those who listen to and believe the terrible lie. The word of the serpent in the garden is constantly whispered into ears, into minds this very day. Does God really love you? Does he really love you? When you let these words sink into your heart and start to take hold, not only do you start to believe that terrible lie, but also start to live that despicable untruth that God doesn't love you. Does God love you? If you have any doubts whatsoever, please look to Jesus. You know these words, don't you? God so loved the world. God so loves you this very moment that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That offer is for you and I today. It may not be there tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow brings. When I look at the excuses of the people in the parable, they're ludicrous, aren't they? They're so transparent, so lame. We can shake our heads and condemn them for their foolishness. It doesn't make any sense to reject such a gracious gift and such a gracious host. However, we need to be careful of the sting because in condemning them as shallow and foolish, do we run the risk of condemning our own lame excuses in the face of God's daily grace. Well, where does that leave us? We are all in need of grace and God is offering abundant grace right now. If for any reason you are rejecting his greatest grace, his saving grace, his son Jesus, 
please, please turn to him. Accept his invitation. Accept his free gift today. If you have received God's saving grace, we still need daily grace. Are we daily grateful for God's grace? Are we daily seeking to replicate that grace? To live out grace? To bless others with the blessings we have received? Kyle Eidelman writes this. The litmus test for the reality of the gospel in your life is the extent to which you give grace and forgiveness to the person who has hurt you most. Wow. That's a big ask. Grace and forgiveness to the person who has hurt you most. I want you to think about that person now. I want you to picture them in your mind. That person who has hurt you most. And I'm going to pray for them and for us right now. Gracious God, we, we thank you for your grace that's beyond our imagining. And Father, we balk. We balk at sharing that grace with people who have badly hurt us, people who have shamed us, people who have abused us. But you call us to be like your son. You call us to a life of forgiveness and grace. So please, Father, during the coming months, the coming years, the rest of our lifetime, if it takes that long, please help us to live out this sort of grace to your glory and praise. In the name of Jesus, amen.